Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to this very special edition of the Attacking Scrum podcast. Thanks very much for downloading it. So, as you know, this is our chat that we had with Phil Steele about a, a month or so ago. And first of all, a massive thanks to Phil for for doing it and for the uh, and for the cappuccino as well. Cheers, Phil. Uh, yeah. So not only did he give up his time, he bought me a coffee, signed a copy of his book, Nerves of Steel, uh, which you can win incidentally if you uh, if you follow us on Twitter at Attacking Scrum and retweet the the pinned tweet. We'll be giving away a, a signed copy uh, that Phil signed for us. And um, that's really an open and an honest podcast Phil talks really candidly about his depression and the personal tragedy that he suffered in his life but it's also a really uplifting story too he's a very optimistic guy and I think it comes across really clear why he's why he's such a a popular figure in Wales and of course we chat rugby because he genuinely loves the game so hope you enjoy the podcast Uh, I certainly enjoyed recording it and if you do give us a retweet uh, so you know, let as many people know about it as you can. Leave us a review on iTunes and help us grow, so we can make you more of these. Hope you enjoy. Right then, delighted to say it's a very special edition of the Attacking Scrum podcast. And joining me to do that is none other than top broadcaster, all-round good bloke, Phil Steele. Phil, welcome to the Attacking Scrum. Cheers, Jed. I always wanted to be on the Attacking Scrum, and now is my chance. It's great to see you. <laughs> this is it. This must be right up there. Oh, it's right the, up there, yeah. In all the things yeah. you've done in your career. Yeah, well, podcasting is the modern way to go, isn't it? And at 56, I thought I'd better get into the, with the times, you know. <laughs> well, you'll always, uh, you'll always be welcome here. It's a bit of a role reversal as well, really, because usually you're the one asking the questions. Yeah, it is, yeah. And it's a little bit strange, yeah. That, that is my, that's why I've become probably best known is for asking the name. <laughs> uh, 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 daft questions, but yeah, it, it'll, 
be interested to see um, what I'm like on the spot. Well, when it comes to inane questions, uh, you're definitely going to have more than your match in, uh, in what I'm uh, going to be bringing to the party. Um, but yeah, there's loads of things we'd love to, love to chat to you about. But first up is, uh, is your book, Nerves of Steel, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, it's a fantastic read and uh, obviously would, would encourage any of our, uh, any of our listeners to, uh, to head, out, uh, head out and buy that. Um, but firstly, wanted to ask, I guess in a bit of a, uh, probably one of the most hacked media questions ever, what made you want to write the book? Well, the, the, the basic thing is I, I've been, uh, it, it's, about, it's about my life, but it's also about the fact that I've suffered with mental illness for, for quite a period of my life, about uh, nigh on 30 years, and um, I've been well now for about the last 15 years, and uh, I just thought the time was right, and with mental illness now starting to become less of a stigma yeah. attached to it I just thought now might be the, the, the time to do it I've got a little bit of a profile uh, in Wales the, 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 the basis of it was that everybody sees me uh, on the telly on a Friday night as being the jolly Phil Steele yeah. always having a laugh and always having a and I do I, I do love life and they see me speaking at dinners you know I do 65 dinners a year all around the world and and I'm the hail fellow well met and always fun and, and that is the, the real Phil Steele but underneath there is this this, this sort of undercurrent of of uh, of sort of like depression, three bouts of depression I suffered in my life, and, and the whole premise of the book was that if it can happen to Steely, the guy we see on on the telly on a Friday night, the, the bloke who seems to have life sorted, um, it, it, it could happen to anybody, you know. And, and I always say they say in the book that if it was good enough for Winston Churchill and uh, Isaac Newton, yeah, and Princess Diana, why wasn't it? You know, why, why can't I have it? Well, I think that's the that's the thing that really struck me is it's a hugely honest book and I think particularly where you, you talk about your battle with depression um, did you feel that was it was important to be that candid when you were writing the book? Oh yeah, at th- th- this point just writing it yeah. otherwise um, the interesting thing for rugby listeners was that um, the, 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 the first bout of depression I've had three major bouts in my life, the first bout of depression I had when, when I was 22 was caused by a rugby injury and I grew up in a, in a a Catholic uh, family in, in Ely in Cardiff. I'm from the rough part of Ely that's called Ely. <laughs> uh, and I was home to people at places like Glenn Webb, you'll probably remember, yeah, yeah. and uh, Eamon Holland, who was a, 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 a stalwart at Glamorgan Wanderers, my first club. And we had boxers like um, Steve Robinson, Eddie Avoth, and Barry Jones, and Nicky Piper. A, a, a real great place uh, to grow up. Um, and all I ever wanted to do was play for Wales. You know, I was a ball boy for Cardiff Rugby Club. And I started playing rugby for Glamorgan Wanderers when I was uh, 15 for the youth team there. And my whole sort of psyche and my whole sort of ambition, although I was pretty academic in school as well, was to was to go to Cardiff College of Education as it was then, Cardiff Met now, and try and play for Wales. Because I, I went to college thinking that Gareth Edwards went there, JJ Williams, Alan Martin, all these great rugby players went there. And that, that, that would be my route, you know. And, and my whole, looking back on my whole sort of um, self-worth, if you like, self-esteem, my sense of a, who, who I was as a person was tied up as Phil Steele, the, the pacifist, non-tackling fullback, you know, as he was at the time. And um, uh, I went to King Coyd, got my degree, got a, got a teaching job, was engaged to a lovely girl, uh, Liz, who later became my wife. And um, I joined Newport. I had 14 matches for Newport and got in the Wales B squad just after I left college. And... Um, and was going really well. Then I had a groin injury, which put me out for a, about half a season. And then coming back after that, I, I came back, got back in the first team. Jonathan Callard, the yeah, uh, right. future England fullback, was my understudy. He was a little bit younger than me, but uh, that's my claim to fame. Here. <laughs> uh, and it's great to see him doing so well now. He's kicking coach at Sale. And um, then I came back to play and against Glamorgan Wanderers of all teams in the ninth minute of injury time. 
I tore my a seventh minute of injury time. The referee Garrison has played nine minutes. I tore my knee ligaments and then was put in plaster as you were in those days. And uh, on the Monday, being off school, couldn't, couldn't teach. Obviously, my leg in plaster. I remember phoning up my my fiance then in her place of work, and when she when she came to the phone, I sort of. Uh, broke down at the sound of her voice just dis- dissolved into tears and I didn't know it then but that was the, the, the start of the first bout of depression that first bout of depression was, was the worst uh, because it, I was psychotic um, I, wasn't, I wasn't psychotic with voices but yeah. I was psychotic with thoughts you know and I, but I can understand how schizophrenia patients would feel if you've got voices I had all thoughts of these weird thoughts you know one of them as I say in the book was that I was going to become a Catholic priest. You know, I'm engaged to be married, and and if you haven't suffered with the condition, yeah. it's difficult to to, to fathom that. But um, I was suicidal as well, uh, and of course, in those days, you couldn't you couldn't say you were suicidal. If you if I'd have gone over to Newport and said to the boys at Newport, I'm feeling suicidal, I can't train tonight, boys. Why not? Well, I've got depression. I'm a bit yeah. suicidal. The answer would have been, Steely, what size boots are you? Are you ten? I'll, I'll have your boots if you top yourself. It was that sort of male sort of dominating humour, and um, and. That, that first body depression, which I didn't get treated for, kept got better by itself and got, got married and everything, but I was left with real bad anxiety and ang- yeah. real bad anxiety state. And I'm talking about, in rugby terms, I'm talking about having a panic attack if I was asked to kick a goal. Um, I remember having a panic attack before going out to play for Newport at Ebervale in front of 8,000 people. And as Glenn George, our captain, is going through the team talk and used to warm up in the change rooms in those days, all I could think about was, is that door going to open? I'm claustrophobic in here, you know? So um, so that's, that's how it hit me. Two, uh, two further bouts, one in 1991, one in 1997, until I started taking a, I found an, an antidepressant mm-hmm. drug that, that sort of suited me. And, uh, and I've been pretty well ever since. I think, again, you know, obviously appreciate your honesty with us today, and that comes across in the book mm. so well and, and reading it I think it's you know with your aim of that any, anyone who's reading it who's yeah. been through that I think you can see how how it can help yeah, someone and, in that situation and the other thing, Jed, the other thing Jed in, in, a, in a rugby situation is that uh, I say in the book that I could pick you an ex-Welsh international team of yeah. players who've suffered with depression it would be captained by the great Dalmy Thomas um, who's been honest about his struggles uh, who captained uh, when they beat the All Blacks in 72 he was a test lion before he was international Dalmy three lion stores and he captained the side with depression you'd have Carwin Davis on the wing um, Lord Reston who was former Slanesley in Wales wing of the 80s who, who committed suicide you'd have Walter Williams former Neath prop Wales prop who committed suicide um, I know of a couple of lads in the Welsh squad at the moment mm. who are being treated for him. Of course, we've had uh, Lee Byrne coming out in his book yeah. saying he's suffered with it. And Tom James, of course, the, yeah. blues, uh, the blues wing, uh, who's st- still off rugby uh, at the moment. So in terms of it, it's a lot more common, I think, in rugby than, than people realise. Well, I think, yeah, just looking at the statistics of the number of men... And of course, and of course, women who do suffer from depression. Why would football? Uh, sorry, why would rugby be any different? Be any different and why would yeah. football be yeah. any different? Yeah. You know, sportsmen, yeah. uh, sportsmen and women. Uh, yeah. Statistically, yeah. you know, probably yeah. even more so. I yeah. suppose because of the pressure. Yeah. Of course, we level. grew we grew up in in Wales. Of course, yeah. with uh, rugby when I played in the eighties, it was all about hardness and it was brutal uh, at times. Um, it was all about hardness, physicality, and, and don't show any weakness. You know, yeah. you don't show your hurt. And of course, if you had gone into the, what well, he just couldn't say, I, I'm. 
I, I, I got the pressure. No, it just, it just wasn't wasn't done. Which presumably exacerbates it as well because you don't have the outlet of being able to. Sorry, talk two of about the worst it. things. That, two of the worst things, and, I, and this is what I always say to people who. Uh, it's amazing. Since the book has come out, the amount of people I get phoning me up or texting me, "Can you have a word with my nephew? He's yeah. going through a bad patch." My sister's. Can you have a can you have a word? Two of the worst things when you get depression. If, two worst feelings you get first of all you think you're the only one who's ever had it mm-hmm. until you think you're never going to get better and um, those are two real pernicious sort of uh, most pernicious things about the disease you know it's a very isolating uh, illness I know and as, as I say uh, we really appreciate your honesty talking about it with us and it certainly certainly comes across uh, certainly comes across in the book interesting bit that, that I've pulled out you know you mentioned there that you know the number of the number of Welsh internationals, you could say. But it was a bit where you said where you were teaching, you were putting on a brave face in school, um, and again, that's completely understandable. But it might, it does also make you think how many people in that school would have been in that same scenario and yeah. felt that they couldn't yeah. talk about it. I used to. If you remember the P, I was a PE teacher in Blangwell Comprehensive School in Aberdeer, which I loved. It was during the miners' strike. My, a hooker in my uh, under 14s and under 15s team. In the two years I was there, was Stuart Cable, the late Stuart Cable, Lord Reston yeah, of the Stereophonics, a great uh, who I got to meet again la- later on. Um, but I can remember, if you remember the old days of the P, you'd have the gym and the PTs, you'd have a little changing room come office with a little shower in, a little claustrophobic thing. And I would very, I would be in there before a lesson with the door locked, bawling in tears, and then sort of putting my game face on and going out to teach uh, Year Eight Form Two gymnastics or, or rugby or whatever, you know. I mean, basically, obviously, it's, it's fantastic to um, to hear, hear you in that you're in good health uh, at, at the moment, Phil. And um, I think one of the things that comes out of the book is, you know, your, is your love of rugby. You know, it's it's still there. It's not been blighted yeah. by by any of your experience. Has has rugby played a role in in your kind of your recovery, if you will? Yeah. The amazing thing is, is that um, uh, I do three of the most stressful. Or I'm not a teacher anymore, but I do three of the most stressful things that are possible to do uh, I was a teacher that's pretty stressful a live broadcaster that's pretty stressful and uh, I'm an after dinner speaker and more people are afraid of speaking in public than they are of dying now I've done both at the same time in some gigs and that's worse I tell you speaking in public and dying at the same time um, so I do three of the most stressful things and, and yet in a, in a strange way even when I was really bad with depression I could still go and speak you know in fact it was great therapy I'd be there in my little bubble my 40-minute speech at a rugby club or something, and then I'd, I'd, be, I'd see myself have to stop in the car on the way home to, uh, to stop in a phone box in the, in, the, in the old days to phone my wife in tears, you know. I just spoke, I'd just been carried out virtually shoulder-high with a standing ovation at a rugby club for the speech, and then I went to, to stop on the way home. So in, the, so in, in, in that way, rugby was a, was a great release. And, of course, uh, you know, once you got on the field, even at Ebba Vale, running out after that claustrophobic attack in the changes, once you caught, caught the first ball and, and, and you, 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 your mind is sort of taken up by, by the game. So it, it was sort of good therapy in a way. I think as well there is a tendency to think, or certainly historically there has been a tendency to think of mental illness as some kind of weakness. But as you yeah. show there, the yeah. strength to actually overcome, yeah. to overcome those and then go out and, yeah. and perform in front of people, be it yeah. after dinner speaking or yeah. on the rugby field. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And people say about, uh, I say this at the end of the book, people say about um, fighting depression, that uh, come on, you've got to get up in the morning, Steely, and you've got to go to work and you've got to play that match and you've got to, uh, you know, you're a hard rugby man. And that's fighting depression is not, that's not fighting depression in my, in my experience. Fighting depression means having an acceptance of it 
and try and, and understanding that you've got even if you same as way if you've got diabetes or you've got uh, a heart problem or you've got uh, whatever condition uh, you've got whether you've got asthma that you accept that it's part of you and it's part of your condition and you, you you accept it and you learn to live with it and you learn to live a happy life and a good life within the confines of the illness and as a rugby man and as a PE man I, I liken it to um, if you've got a hamstring if you've pulled a hamstring and you can't play for the first team on Saturday because your hamstring is gone but what you might be able to do is jog a few laps around the field yeah. you might be able to do a bit of weights you might be able to do some cycling in other words you can sort of still live as a rugby player within the confines of the injury until you're ready to get back to play for the first team and that's like uh, mental illness that's like depression I found you know that when you get about it it is to, to try and accept look I know I've got this bout of depression I know I'm not going to be at full throttle for a few weeks or a few months or however long it takes but I'll still try and keep going in life but give myself permission to, to sort of be kind to myself and if I it means going down the pub uh, and coming away after half an hour because I feel a bit anxious I'll, I'll, I'll do that it does feel though in, particularly in the last couple of years that with more and more people speaking about it but I think particularly in sport yeah. it does feel as though you're right there is less of a stigma attached yeah. Yeah. and and again that can only be a, a helpful thing in helping people yeah. to, in what, people one to, of the, to deal two with or two of the people who uh, have been very very uh, at the forefront of, of lessening the, the stigma of the condition and Nigel Owens of course yeah, and of course. the great Clive Norling the referee and I did a programme with uh, Clive, he suffered a very, very bad bout of it about eight years ago, and I did a programme on Radio Wales called uh, Whistling in the Dark about his uh, about his depression, but he's um, he, he got over it, you know, and, and he's very, very vociferous about speaking out, and of course those people who remember the great Clive Norling referee, I mean, he set the standard for, yeah. for the Nigel Owenses and the Derek Bevans to come along, you know, and he was the first celebrity referee, the most confident confident, outward going man you'd ever wish to meet, and yet he suffered badly with... Uh, with depression I'd say yeah, hopefully things are moving in the right direction and uh, and certainly the book is as well as being a fantastic read it, it really does tackle those things uh, those things head on so uh, again, ho- hopefully that will um, that will help on anyone anyone who's uh, who's read the book as, as well we want to talk, uh, talk rugby of course as well Phil and um, you know I think you'd be you'd be most well known uh, as the the, as you alluded to earlier, the, the cheery giant on the touchline yeah. uh, on Friday and Saturday nights on um, BBC Wales coverage of, of live rugby. Obviously, we're at a bit of a, uh, I guess, a bit of a crossroads for the game, really, with with BBC losing those live rights. How do you how do you think that's going to uh, that's going to affect the club game in Wales? Well, it's all right for me. I'm freelance. I can go and work for anybody. <laughs> no, um, it's very interesting actually. That the, 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 the Pro 14 have decided to go. Uh, totally uh, paywall TV, satellite TV, when other sports, cricket in particular, yeah. um, are making an effort to bring it back to terrestrial. I think they, you know, for all the money that Sky TV has put into cricket, I think the ECB have, have, have noticed that, um, that yes, you can have all the money, but there is no substitute for the free advertising that, yeah. that, that terrestrial TV give you in terms of uh, in terms of making the product available to, to the to the masses. Even um, I noticed BT Sport now has announced that they're going to put some European That's Champions right, yeah. Cup games uh, next year on on uh, available to terrestrial. And yet the Pro 14 have gone seem to be sort of have gone a totally different tack against the the prevailing thoughts uh, at the moment, which is to try and get. Uh, terrestrial, some of your sport on terrestrial TV. I can understand why Martin and I has done it. The chief executive, I, I've, I've met Martin and I, very very good man, very very good businessman. And Martin and I's brief was to bring in more 
um, revenue for the, the Pro 14, and he's done it. Mm. He, he's done that, you know. And I can understand that the, the game in Wales is, is is struggling for money. Probably the whole, all the teams in the Pro 14 uh, are, are probably not as uh, flush as, as, no, as they'd like not. to be. Uh, so Martin and I did that. My only concern is that. Um, it's behind two paywalls, yeah. you know. You see, I understand that you've got to have Sky Sports or BT Sports before you can actually pay for this channel. So it's behind a double paywall. Um, the Pro 14 has not got the profile of the, for whatever reason, and that's another debate. That's another ten podcast probably. <laughs> the Pro 14, most people would agree, is, has not got the profile that the that the, the Viva Premiership in England has got. And so, I just, I sort of just fear a little bit for the. Um, well, for the for the immediate future and the effect it's going to have, it could have a good effect. It could, obviously, the, 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 there will be more money in it. Although I understand, um, allegedly, that's the word all yeah. broadcasters. But I, allegedly, I understand. You don't, I don't want you getting this in legal no, trouble, no, here, Phil. No, no, no. But I understand that um, the, the money involved are not huge sums, you know. And not, I don't think they're they're sort of like they're going to bring you. Uh, three marquee signings yeah. to every team, you know. I understand. I, I wouldn't, but. Um, but uh, Everyone talks about the pathway with players. Now, there are 320 rugby clubs in Wales. I've probably spoken at the annual dinners of them over 30 years. There are probably about 200 of them. So I know a lot of people. I, I, I test the water of a lot of opinions and what have you. And everyone knows about the pathway for players, but I'm going to talk now about the pathway for the, for the fan yeah. and how kids and people get involved. And I've got no empirical evidence for this, but this is anecdotally. Around all the clubs that I talk to, and parents and everything, and I go to mini rugby presentations and school presentations and everything. And um, the one thing that comes across is a kid of seven will first touch a rugby ball probably when the, the, the Welsh Rugby Union hub officer comes into the school and he comes in and he says Dad I, we had the hub officer but yeah. we had, we had rugby oh I love rugby will you take me to the local rugby club and he goes and plays for Llangeneth Rugby Club under eights for example and he goes on a Sunday morning he loves it and what have you and his next his next step after that as a, as a, as a, as a participant as, a, as, a, as a, a, a rugby person he'll say to his father Dad uh, Oh, the Scarlets. Can I watch this? Let's watch the Scarlets, Dad. And his father will say, come on, then sit down with me and Mum. Now we'll watch the Scarlets on a Friday. Then the kid will say, Dad, who's that guy on the wing? That's Steph Evans. Oh, he's my favourite player. Dad, will you take me to the Scarlets? Will you take me to Parker Scarlets to watch Steph Evans and the Scarlets? That's the pathway. Now, all of a sudden, you've taken the middle plank of the pathway out. And I just... Um, that concerns me. Oh, it's definitely my worry as well, because that, that journey you're, you're talking about there, although... Be a bit different because I was growing. I was growing up in London, but for me, it was watching Five Nations games. So going, yeah. who's that there? Who's that, who's that, that, that there? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, actually, yeah, there wasn't many Newport players in the, t- yeah. in the team at the time. Yeah. But then when we were back in Newport, yeah. it was going to watch yeah. Newport, That's and you get you get yeah. the you get the buzz from yeah. it. And um, but you're right, without that exposure, yeah. it feels like the the Welsh club rugby or Welsh yeah. pro club rugby isn't in the shop window. No, anymore. no. And I, but again, I can understand. I understand uh, exactly why Martin and I he. Uh, uh, you know, uh, push for it, and I can understand why why it was voted uh, to, to go through on to take it off uh, uh, terrestrial. And uh, maybe it will. Hopefully, it will uh, benefit the crowds. Maybe if you, people want to go and see rugby now, they have to turn up live, like it always used yes. to be before live rugby. But it's certainly uh, it's certainly uh, an end of an era because it's the first time that uh, that rugby hasn't been um, live on on uh, terrestrial TV yeah. since well, basically since. 
for the advent of professionalism, really. Yeah. And it's, uh, I suppose, the, the, other, the other danger, I think, there, Phil, the bit, the bit that really worries me is there is more distraction and more other choices for young people than there ever has been. You know, in sport, the Premier League, yeah. and particularly in Wales, you yeah. know, with, with Cardiff and Swansea. Yeah, with Cardiff go up, especially. Yeah, yeah. you know, they're, they're there and, and you're drawn to that in live sport. Yeah. But then otherwise you've got... Xbox and PlayStation yeah. and there's so many yeah. other things that rugby yeah. has to fight hard and yeah. really put itself out yeah. there to make sure yeah. people fall in love with the game the same way we yeah. do. And the other thing that uh, uh, people are probably aware of, certainly if you're involved in rugby in, in Wales, club rugby, this is why I always put my hashtag on Twitter, hashtag love club rugby, because yeah. I try to do whatever I can to, to, to promote the club game. I'm a firm believer that uh, whether we're Steph Evans or Phil Steele or Terry Holmes or Barry John, we all came from somewhere. You know, yeah. we all started out of the Wanderers in my case. Um, people, most people in the know will tell you that club rugby is really, really struggling. You know, for, for numbers, clubs that used to run four or five sides here in Cardiff are now down to one. Um, there's a lack of players playing the game between the age of 16 to 18. It's a real, real, uh, real, real big issue. I am heartened. I know, I know Ryan Jones pretty well. The, the um, head of participation of the Welsh Rugby I know he's doing he's working his absolute socks off and the Welsh Rugby do get stick yeah. and I've given them stick over the years not not least when they didn't give me my tracksuit when I had to withdraw from that Welsh squad once but they do get stick but I, I can put my hand on my heart and say that, that Ryan and I've spoken to him at length about this they are, they are doing everything they can to increase the participation no, but it's still a massive massive uh, uh, sort of issue and, and one of the one of the things I say about this just to go off on it this is a little bit of a hobby horse of mine is um, it's the irony of it is that um, that uh, Wales for our, for our three million we, we punch above our weight at, at sort of professional rugby yeah. level you know to have the Scarlets now in the quarterfinals and, and whatever to have Wales having three Grand Slams in the last whatever it is 15 uh, uh, 13 years whatever it is um, the, 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 not, the, the, the detrimental effect is that is everything seems to be geared towards the professional yeah. game. Now, I, this is one of my uh, sort of hobby horses. If I was growing up in Ely in Cardiff again as a 16-year-old and I was a reasonable player, um, I wouldn't have played for Glamorgan Wanderers Youth, which I did. I played four seasons for Glamorgan Wanderers Youth. I played 104 games, which I think is still, still a record. Four seasons. Now, if I was uh, 16 again, I wouldn't play for Glamorgan Wonders Youth. The Blues Academy would have taken me, yeah. picked me up amongst amongst all these lots of other lots of other kids. They'd have put me in a tracksuit. They'd have not allowed me to play for Glamorgan Wonders Youth. They'd have taken me away from the club, taken me away from my friends, from my peer group. I wouldn't have grown up in the club, the club ethos of where you have your first fight and you have your first kiss with a girl and you have your first pint, you know, with with your mates. The rites of passage that all sort of teenagers go through. Um, I'd have been put in the academy. You can only probably play for the academy a few times a season, you know, against other academies and whatever. You're told what to eat. You're told what to drink. You, you know, you and the, you, you, you have this notion that you're going to be a professional player. And of course, at 18, as in professional football, most of the kids don't make it yeah. to a full professional contract. And, and what happens then? And again, this is anecdotal evidence of mine, not, not empirical. Those children, those kids walk away from the game because they think rugby has dealt them a, a tough hand and they've got no club culture to fall back on. Now, that player who walks away from the game at 18 could have been a good, good player for Slangenet yeah, yeah. Or, or, or London Welsh or, or, or Kyra Ely or Glamorgan Wanderers, you know, and we're losing a, a massive amount. The, 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 the upside of that, of course, is for every 100 children that you, 100, 100 kids that you take into the uh, the academy umbrella, and I'm not, I'm just using the word, the name 100 there, yeah. 100 uh, for argument's sake. <clears throat> 
There will be one Sam Orbodin who comes yeah. through. There will be one Steph Evans. There will be one George North, you know. But to the detriment of the club game. It does, and it feels like it's at a real crossroads. You're right, not, you know, with whether you want to play amateur or you want to play professional, because you do have that. You look at someone like, uh, like Aaron Wainwright at the uh, at the Dragons. Again, gone from club rugby, and he is some player. He's mm-hmm. a serious, serious player. Yeah. And having had that opportunity, but you're right. There's there's so much more to yeah. to club rugby than yeah. than professionalism, and that, and that that is a, a bit of a worry. Yeah. I say in the book as well that um, one of my great worries, if the graph comes keeps going on the, the current trajectory then my great worry is that in 20 25 years time nobody will play rugby for fun it'll just be uh, schools colleges academies professional game a bit like american football you know and that would be a, that'll be a tragedy for, for wales and welsh life because as you know rugby is such such a part of the uh, of the fabric of welsh life you know? i think that's it and you know you look at you look at the history of Wales and, and the role that rugby clubs have played in every mm. in every single community. To think that that won't be there in 25 yeah, years' time is yeah. a, it's a bit of a scary thought, yeah. isn't it? But as I say, I, I I am heartened by. I don't think they could have had a better man the Welsh Rugby Union than, than Ryan. You know, he he is very passionate about it. Um, he came from Baysleg School and, and, and Riska. He played a bit of youth rugby for Riska Youth. He was picked up quite late, you know, uh, Ryan as a yeah. as a rugby football, football as well, right? Yeah. yeah, but. Um, and, um, and and good luck to him, I would say. You know. Yeah, it's good. Well, again, we we definitely uh, definitely echo those um, those sentiments. I think the other thing as well, Phil, that, that we were chatting about just before we came on is the is the values that, that rugby teaches you, and uh, that's a, a hugely important thing. Do you, in kind of your in your professional capacity as a broadcaster, is that something you've noticed changing in the in the pro game now? I'm thinking, you know, people give Dan Bigger some stick now because of his kind of griping at the referee. And yeah, and the like ironic that. thing with Dan Bigger off the field, he's the he's the most lovely gentleman you could ever wish to meet. He's a he's a smart Smashing role model off the field, you know. He's got so much time. He does there's so much things for, for kids and, and for presentations and all that. Absolute real gent off the field. Yeah, he's got this reputation as being a, a bit chippy. That is that is that is uh, creeping into the game. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's a, a rugby a, a rugby issue as much as a society issue. You know, society. I know. Just going to speak at dinners, whereas before uh, 20, 30 years ago, you go to a rugby club and uh, you'd have perfect respect. Now you have to whip them into shape a bit. You know. So I think it's probably a societal thing. As much as uh, as much as uh, rugby, um, I, I still think though we're we're not to take the moral high ground, but we're still ahead of, uh, of football mm. when it comes to uh, respecting the referee. You know, the, I think the referee would still be called sir by yeah. by most people and whatever. And, and those values and the values of uh, you know not diving, not diving very often. <laughs> we have seen it a little bit, uh, but also not not just the values of rugby that, that I grew I grew up with. It's the, the camaraderie, you know. Now, in e- growing up in Ely, you could either play soccer or you could play rugby. There was nothing else, you know. There was no swimming or badminton that you can do today or Xboxes. You either played sort of rugby or football. And a lot of people went to play rugby because of the camaraderie and whatever. And still, one of the um, one of the most impre- impressionable things I've ever done was as a 16-year-old kid playing youth rugby and growing up in Ely, you know, where no, nobody had very much materially, and going to Canada on a jumbo jet when I was 16 for, with Glamorgan Wanderers Youth, we combined with Landeff 40 years ago in, in May, May the 12th, 1978, and what an impressionable thing to do be, be, as a kid from a council state to go on a jumbo jet to the New World, as it was known, Canada, to Toronto for two weeks. That was an unforgettable experience. It's still the most impressionable thing I've ever done, and that was because of rugby. 
Well, that's it, and, and you know, I think obviously Phil, we're, we're both uh, both singing off the same hymn sheet here, and and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good to hear from you. Yeah, as you as you know, Ryan a lot closer than I would. It's great to hear that that level of that level of work is going on at the union, and and, and long may that continue. Right, we're going to finish then, Phil, with a little uh, a little new feature which we've introduced to the to the show, which is called Tap and Go. And the idea is, I throw a question at you, and you've got to come back uh, back with your with your first answer. Right, okay. No, right. no, t- no time for right, thinking. Okay. So, uh, right, ready? Phil Steele's tap and go. Here we go. Hardest player you've ever played against? Uh, played with uh, Roger Powell, I would say, but I also played against him. Newport flanker of the 1980s, fantastic player. Hard as nails. Best tourist. Best tourist. Uh, best tourist. A guy called. Um, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. Let me think. A guy called. Uh, uh, Sean McWilliams, who I played with in college, played for Newport a bit and for Swans. He played with me in college when I at South Morgan Institute as he was, and Sean was a great tourist. And one of his party pieces, I've never seen anyone else do it. He could draw caricatures on the on the uh, the, um, the condensation on the inside of, of the team bus. You know, fantastic. <laughs> Sean McWilliams. Sean McWilliams. Right, pint of lager or pint of protein shake? Oh, lager, <laughs> with a dash. <laughs> with a dash. Strangest thing that's ever been said to you on the pitch? Um, strangest thing that's ever been. Uh, <laughs> Said to me on a said by Clive Norling. Um, do you want the context? Can I give you the story? Absolutely. Yeah, go for a, it. I played against Swansea in uh, about 1988, and uh, uh, they kicked for touch, missed touch, and our winger John Thomas caught it. He threw a pass into me. It was an awful day at Rodney played, and I, I went to pick it up on the half volley, and I dropped it. Clive Norling was refereeing, and I, in a feet of pig, I kicked the ball away, thinking, oh, waiting for the whistle to say, uh, uh, to say, uh, knock on uh, 15, scrum Swansea. No advantage, scrum Swansea. And, of course, Norling didn't blow the whistle. Well, this kick of mine has gone straight down after Emir's throat, catches it on the halfway line, runs 50 yards, almost scores in the corner, and uh, Nigel Callard, brother of Jonathan, elbows him out, as you could do in those days, just by the corner flag. I felt absolutely awful. One of the ground to run up with open up and swallow me and drag him back into position and gnawing with his big ass, and this curly perm runs past me and says advantage Phil good roar isn't it <laughs> amazing right a couple, a couple more to finish Phil bigger Patchell or Anscom Patchell and why uh, gets the line going gets the line going and I'm a bit of a romanticist a bit of a romantic and I I like a back division that, that moves the ball I'm, uh, yeah, I'm singing on the same hymn sheet again there Newport or Cardiff uh, I'm a Cardiff boy, proud Cardiff boy. I was a ball boy for Cardiff. Almost joined Cardiff in 1983 when I left college. Trained with both, trained with Newport as well. But Mike Watkins, Spikey, the great Spike Watkins, was captain of Newport. And uh, Newport made me feel a bit more welcome as a new newbie. So Newport. Oh, good answer. Right, and then finally, worst roommate? Uh, worst roommate would be a guy called... Uh, Jeremy Evans that I was uh, in college with shared a room with him on tour in America in 1983 uh, lovely man from, from Ponderdale Life's Jeremy lovely man uh, but not the tidiest <laughs> Phil it's been absolutely amazing uh, amazing to chat to you uh, as I say Nerve to Steel is available from uh, from all good bookshops via um, uh, St David's uh, St David's Press who uh, very kindly put me in touch with you uh, to start with it's been an absolute pleasure enjoy your orange yeah. cheers Jed have a good orange <laughs> So that's it, our interview with Phil Steele. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and go and buy Phil's book as well. It's a fantastic read, Nerves of Steel, and you can get that from all good bookshops, from St. David's Press or Amazon or wherever you uh, wherever you like to get your books. Uh, alternatively, you could win a signed copy by following at Attacking Scrum on Twitter and retweeting the pinned tweet. Next week, we've got our special with David Bishop coming out and you will not want to miss that one. We'll chat to you soon. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network.